Welcome to Business with Beers, a podcast for business owners who want to scale their business to massively grow their income and contribution by investing in people, process, and technology. I'm your host, Brian Beers. This week, we've got a great show with Charlie Stevenson from Acris Capital. Acris is a real estate investment company that focuses on multifamily properties. Their mission is to produce financial freedom in the lives of the partners and the investors. In this episode, Charlie and I talk about what is a syndication, the benefits to an investor, what types of financial returns can they expect, and how COVID has changed those. Charlie talks about the importance of being very selective on both the quantitative and the qualitative measures they use to determine what markets they invest in. He shares some gold nuggets on creating a blueprint of standard operating procedures to run the company, which ultimately will provide time freedom for himself and the partners. If you enjoy this episode, please share it with your friends, rate and review with your favorite part to help us reach more people. And if you'd like to learn more about the topics covered in this podcast, check out brianbeers.com to sign up for my free weekly newsletter delivering content directly to your inbox. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Thank you, Ryan. Good to be here. Great. Well, this wouldn't be business with beers if I didn't ask you, we're at a bar having a cold one. What yeah. are you drinking? Well, I guess the question back at you is, where are we drinking? Are we in Colorado or are we in you know where you are? Or because it's mm. like such a like it's so different from one place to another. All right, uh, um, Colorado. <laughs> in Colorado, okay. Um, so, favorite beer out here right now, I would say, is um, there's a brewery local to Boulder where I live called Sanitas Brewery, Sanitas, uh, and they have uh, a pretty awesome hazy IPA, and I'm a sucker for hazies. So uh, if I was that, if you were to ask me what my overall favorite beer in the, in the country is, it'd be Hetty Topper from uh, Vermont. Um, that's where I was. I was out in Vermont for a while or in, in New England anyway. And so I, I uh, got a taste for that. So I always try to recreate the Hetty Topper wherever I go. So okay. there nice. it is. What if I said Key West? Ooh, I don't know. I don't know a lot of Florida beers. Um, I think I'd probably go like with like a Presidente or something. When I get down to the tropics, I want like a lager style with a yep. like a lime in it or something. So I'd probably go with like a uh, like a Spanish or a Caribbean brand. Perfect. Sounds great. So if you could share your story, who you are, what you do, mm-hmm. where you live. Yeah. So again, my name is Charlie Stevenson. Uh, I uh, live in Boulder, Colorado, with my wife, and originally I'm from Washington State. Uh, moved to Boulder just a few years ago. Uh, I am. Uh, I own a business called Acris Capital. Uh, we focus on acquiring and operating multifamily assets in inland growth cities. And my career landed me here after kind of a, a crazy entrepreneurial roller coaster of different types of businesses and different industries. But I'm, I'm a big traveler. I'm a big outdoorsman. I love to be skiing and in the mountains and uh, love to travel. And so when I was uh, in college, I uh, started a travel company um, that took American study abroad students from um, different parts of Europe to other parts of Europe or to North Africa or the Carib- or the Mediterranean. So uh, after graduating from college and doing a little bit of a stint in corporate America, I started a, an adventure travel company based in Florence, Italy, ran that for several years. Uh, and then uh, started another travel company based in Boston where I went to college and, um, had a blast doing that and eventually got back, you know, as businesses, some succeed, some fail. I got back into corporate travel and worked in, uh, in Boston a bit longer. That's when I met my wife and she was working in, um, investment management, uh, essentially on wall street, but in Boston. 
And we were both working the corporate grind. Uh, we both love to travel. That's the reason why we, we liked each other and said on our honeymoon, we need to take a year off and go travel. And so we both quit our corporate jobs and went and traveled. And we bought some backpacks, spent a bunch of time in Southeast Asia, India, Russia, Northern Europe, all over the place. Um, and while we did that, we rented out our, our home that was in Boston, right? And sit in the city and made some passive income kind of accidentally. And we're looking at each other one time, riding a train across Northern Siberia and Russia uh, and said, man, if we had five more of these things, we could basically retire. That'd be an awesome set of passive income. And uh, our friend who was riding with us said, I've been doing that since 2009. <laughs> How come you guys haven't been buying multifamilies? And that's when we said, let's combine forces and start a company. And that's what Acris Capital became. Uh, out of that idea. So we began acquiring small multifamilies in my hometown of Washington, in Washington State. Uh, and uh, after building a small portfolio there, we started buying much larger assets in partnership um, in a, using a syndication model uh, in inland Florida and uh, Orlando and in uh, Dallas, Fort Worth. And uh, now we acquire uh, primarily in Phoenix and, and we also look at the Carolinas. So um, yeah, that's our whole story. We started with just small multis and then jumped to much, much larger ones with the help of teams. Okay. What did it look like that first couple? Like, what was the progression? Like the duplex, multiple duplexes, and then you got kind of a bigger 10, 20 unit, and then it went to big? Or what was like the yeah. progression we of that? Always, yeah, we always started, uh, our, our original kind of investment policy was to always buy commercial size uh, mm -hmm. assets, which was five units plus, mm -hmm. uh, because we wanted to be... Uh, uh, valuating these things based upon net operating income. We wanted to be uh, able to get access to uh, lending that would only be available to commercial uh, uh, borrowers. So we always started with commercial. So five units plus our first asset was a five unit. Um, our next asset was a seven. Our, our, our The next one was 12. So we kept moving. And then we jumped into like took a plunge with a team that we met at a big real estate investing conference and acquired a 324 unit. Oh, so wow. 12 to 324. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then after that was 111 units. And now we look at stuff that's anywhere from, we look at stuff anywhere from 50 units to 250 units. It's kind of like that medium sized okay. asset. Yeah. So 50 is kind of the smallest you would, uh, you would do. Well, we right. do. We did 1031 exchange some of those uh, original assets that we bought in Washington into Phoenix, and we bought um, stuff in the in that similar size, like eight mm -hmm. to twenty units category. So, um, for our own internal investing, sometimes we'll buy smaller assets if they make sense. But for our our kind of bread and butter stuff, yeah, fifty units plus is is kind of our, okay. our world. So, for those who don't know, can you define what syndication is? Kind of how does sure. it work? High level? Sure. Yeah. So syndication is just a technique for acquiring an asset. Um, it can be used to acquire all sorts of stuff. People use it to buy buildings. They use it to buy artwork. They use it to buy all kinds of stuff. Um, but syndicating is essentially bringing experience and money together. That's if you're to define syndication. Um, in uh, multifamily investing, it's very similar. Um, essentially, you um, will bring uh, a, a team of experienced operators. Um, our team will come in and say, all right, we want to have uh, a, a small group of, of folks that can operate this actual asset. Um, everything from the acquisition to underwriting it and uh, asset managing it all the way through disposition and selling it. Mm -hmm. So you've got a team that does that. And then you want to bring in capital. So maybe that group brings some of its own money from its own internal money, but then you might need a lot more. And so syndicating brings in limited partners who want to passively invest in an asset and have no 
uh, responsibility in the actual operation of it at all. Um, and that's the that's kind of the bigger syndication of limited partners bringing them and their capital into the asset as uh, passive investors. And so that's very roughly kind of how it, okay. how it works. Yep. You know, we use syndication sometimes. We'll also use joint venture structures. We'll also use tenant and common structures. There's a lot of different structures you can use to acquire an asset. It just really depends upon what makes most sense for that asset, the asset size, et cetera, the raise, all that. Okay. And then what's a typical uh, timeline of holding an asset if it's a syndication? Yeah, I would say that uh, the best practice is to underwrite a deal to five years. Um, and that's what we typically see our peers doing. That's what we typically do as well. Mm -hmm. um, but we have seen that extend a little bit in the last uh, year or so. Some people are saying five to seven or seven to 10. Um, yeah, but it's really deal dependent. You know, some deals you might syndicate and they only have a couple of year time timeline. It really depends upon what is that what does that asset need? Um, what's the require time requirement to get it to that point for an exit or whatever it might be. So it's very deal dependent. Okay. So on the if on the investor side, someone's looking to invest passively, right? Because they don't they don't want to go do it themselves. Mm -hmm. Um I guess why would they invest in a syndication, maybe versus like a like a publicly traded REIT or even maybe a, a DIY? And what are the what are yeah. the benefits to them? So a syndication, um or investing as a limited partner in a syndication versus, you know, some of those other types of securities or some of those other uh, vehicles. Um, it, it, it does a couple of things. It gives you uh, more direct access to that team that's doing it. So um, you're very close to the actual asset in most cases, whereas with a REIT, it might, it's sort of like a mutual fund of assets. So, you know, it could be a, an asset class, in 50 markets across the United States. Um, and so there's less direct understanding of exactly what you're investing in, um, maybe less direct access to the operator and the team that provides investor relations. So it's a closeness to the deal, which in my opinion, mitigates risk. Um, so you know, if you are an LP with a deal with our company, Acris, uh, you can call me up almost anytime. You know, as long as it's business hours, you can connect with myself, the underwriter, the asset manager, and we can answer questions for you. Whereas if you invest in a big REIT, uh, you might have to go through, it's like calling a bank kind of, you might have to go mm -hmm. through an administrative process. You might not be able to get someone on the line who's actually an influencer or a manager in the deal. So there's a degree of closeness. Um, there's also that degree of like, kind of more, it's a more laser guided, you know, exactly usually where your capital is going. You can drive by the asset itself and see it. So there's a degree of closeness to the deal that I think is different than other, uh, you know, kind of more ag asset agnostic mm -hmm. vehicles for investment. Um, you mentioned DIY, like doing it yourself. So the biggest, I think the biggest uh, opportunity or the biggest benefit of investing in syndication is the passive nature of the investment. You can invest a lot of money and, and not have to raise a finger except for a couple of times to sign five documents and then you're done. Mm -hmm. So that's really, really nice. You get, you know, maybe a monthly or quarterly distribution uh, plus potentially a nice payout at the end, depending upon how that deal is structured. So there's cash flow coming um, and you can deploy a lot of capital into one deal and get a decent amount of ownership. Um, so it's all the benefits of ownership without any of the uh, requirements of lifting fingers, managing tenants, all the work of operating a deal and figuring out what kind of a business plan it needs, which is what a DI, you know, if you were to do it yourself and get a fix and flip or buy a five unit or a four unit, certainly can do that. It's a huge amount of work. Uh, I know from direct experience, you know, I've like 
been very, very involved with my hands, like on a project that requires a ton of work, even if you think it's going to run really smoothly, stuff doesn't. So having a team that knows how to do that and set systems and processes and up so it does is really a great benefit to have. Okay. And what type of return? Uh, and I know every deal is different, but like mm-hmm. what type of return if it's the first syndication are they looking at? And I guess what, you know, there's cash yeah. on cash, right? There's like an yeah, IRR, yeah. which is a more complicated formula. And then some, some mm-hmm. simply look, I think, at an equity multiple to say, hey, I give you a hundred grand. How much yeah. are you going to give me back? in how much time, right? So yeah, your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's a lot of, so there's a lot of different ways to measure performance of an asset. And there's a lot of different ways to measure uh, a return profile. And the simplest, I think, to, for people to understand um, the equity multiple is a really simple tool to understand. Like you said, if it's a, if it's a 2.0 equity multiple, um, that means you put in a hundred thousand dollars, you get $200,000 back. If it's a, if it's a 50, you know, a 0.5 equity multiple, you know, you put in a hundred thousand dollars, you're going to get $150,000 back. So that's really easy. I think to understand, um, whereas, uh, you know, you start messing around with cash on cash or internal rate of return, IRR or annual average return. And those can all be a little bit, uh, are a little bit more complicated for the kind of original or novice investor. I would say the next best return uh, metric to look at is cash on cash return. That's the return you're going to earn based upon the actual cash that you invest. Um, you know, and that's really easy to peg against an investment in like another uh, vehicle or another entity or another stock, like a stock market or, mm-hmm. or, the, or the or mutual fund like that. So, you know, if the cash on cash is like eight or 9%, that's better than a four or 5% that you typically see in like the stock market. So cash on cash uh, and the uh, equity multiple, I think are two really good numbers. When you get to annual average return, that's essentially just the equity multiple divided by the the time, the length of the deal. So you can really easily kind of like figure that out. But a lot of times, you know, uh, when you get into IRR, you're taking into account net present value and the time value of money. And so it starts to get a little more complicated. That's where you have an adjustment for inflation. Um, So anyway, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. I would just say start with cash on cash return. And uh, and equity multiple, and if you need to see what you're going to make on a, on a on a yearly basis, multiply that, and you'll figure out what your annual average return is. IRR, just you know, <laughs> yeah, don't worry about that one for take now. Take it or leave it. Uh, in ter- you asked about like what are people looking for right now? So it's changed a lot. Uh, I just wrote a, an article about this just last week. Um, last year and pre-COVID, we were usually targeting between a 16 at 20 percent annual average return and like a 1.85 to 2.1 equity multiple. That was our target pre-COVID. Um, for, for your investors, like what you're delivering for, to them. Yeah, for what we're delivering to them, okay. what we're also delivering to ourselves and yep. okay. so um, uh, kind of what our peers were at on average delivering for a kind of run-of-the-mill multifamily reposition project. Mm-hmm. So. Um, that was kind of the, the in, a, in, a, in a growing market. So that was the, the return profile Pre-COVID. before COVID happened. Money sat on the sidelines. Deal flow sat on the sidelines because people didn't want to sell. They didn't know what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so demand continued to increase because more and more capital piled up as investors were like, I'm still making money and I need to put it somewhere. And deal flow was still zero to very little. Um, so then as those deals started to trickle out and it showed that the economy, the fundamentals of the economy were still quite strong and the government was continuing to stimulate the economy and it didn't look like people were going to lose their shirts if they made it, you know, were in particular industries, all of a sudden those deals started to come back out 
And the sellers were extremely confident because they're feeling good about the economy. They also know there's a ton of money out there that yep. needs to be deployed. Yep. So they started putting their 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 uh, multifamily assets out there at higher than pre-COVID levels. And as they marketed them, they would even increase their expectation for um, for what they would get. So price guidance would come out from the brokerage networks at X dollars, let's say 15 million for a deal. And then three weeks later, it had creeped up to 16 or 17 or even 18. And then it gets bid up to 19. Oh and all God. the value, investable yeah. value has been squeezed out. So because of those forces, which are very real, um, I would say that the average returns have actually compressed quite a bit. Um, and they've also followed what the treasury does. So not to get too complicated here, yep. but treasury returns, which is the government, it's one of the most safe forms of you know investment and the safest, most peggable return. Um, the 10-year treasury has gone down to one and a half percent. And it used to be a bit higher. And as that goes down, general returns tend yep. to correlate with interest that rates come down and then cap rates come down because it's all they're all exactly. tied together, it's right? It's all, all pegged. It's all pegged together. Yep. It's all correlated. So as all that stuff goes down. So does the return for a typical multifamily multifamily investor. And so while this is still a safe haven for investing, and we still think it's one of the strongest asset classes, um, that also goes with it. And so we're now saying that investors probably need to set their expectations somewhere between you know, uh, a cash on cash return somewhere of like six to 9%, which is actually kind of where it was before. Like eight mm -hmm. to 9% was the cash on cash that we always was our threshold target. Um, and uh, and a annual average return somewhere between like I don't know ten and thirteen percent or ten or four and fourteen percent. Mm -hmm. So that's come down a bit. Um, and equity multiples anywhere from one point four to one point eight or one point nine. Um, so you can you see you've seen a, a drop, but you know ultimately it's still a great place to invest. Um, it's still a great return relative to the treasury, which more sophisticated and more mature investors they use that as their peg. Um, to traditional retail investors who were really excited about 20% plus, you know, returns, uh, aren't going to be happy, but frankly, the only stuff they're going to find right now is stuff that's being, uh, artificially inflated in terms of return profiles. And you gotta be careful around that stuff. Cause there's still peers of my, you know, still, uh, operators out there that are promoting 20 to 30% IRR and 20 to 30% returns mm -hmm. on these, on these deals. And you just gotta be really careful around those. Yep. Sure. Hey guys, Brian Beers here. In addition to being an entrepreneur, a podcast host, and a real estate investor, I work with a handful of clients as a strategic business coach. Success is 80% mindset and 20% mechanics. And as your coach, first, I focus on that 80% mindset. I help you get clarity on the vision that you want to create for your life and your business. We then set goals that align with creating that future. From there, it's all about having a laser focus and taking action on a daily basis. You know, I'm a friendly guy, but you're not hiring me to be your friend. You're hiring me to help turn decades into days by holding you accountable for doing what you say you're going to do. So if you're interested to learn more, go to brianbeers.com to book a coaching discovery call today. So you said the market's tough to find. How do you go then about finding deals? Is it through off-market relationships? Is that the primary source? Yeah, so we have traditional uh, relationships with deal providers like brokers and the larger, you know, brokerage houses like CBRE, Marcus and Millichap, Cushman and Wakefield, et cetera. And and as you get to know those folks, um, they tend to start showing you their deals before they actually, you know, are presented to the to the marketplace. And so that's typically where we find those types of deals. Um, we also get a little bit more creative with deal sourcing. We go to places 
like wholesalers um, who typically find smaller assets, but every once in a while, uh, they might come across a seller who's like, oh, I thought you guys only you know, wanted my duplexes and triplexes and crummy single families. Well, I also have a 35 unit or I have a 50 unit or a 75 unit that happens to be in my family. And you're my guy right now. So why don't we just try it here? You know, they can quickly close, they can bring capital quickly. So yeah. <clears throat> so we do find that wholesalers sometimes find deals like that. Um, yeah, it's, that's somewhere or, I think you don't think to look, right? Because they're normally playing in the small single family, but you're right that he may own a couple single families and that guy may also own a apartment street, apartment down the street. So exactly. So that's that's one place we look. Um yeah, other than that, like we create partnerships with you know teams that we co GP deals on and uh, extend our geographic focus a little bit, and and that uh, expands our 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 deal flow. Um, so we find markets that look like the types of markets we like and learn the growth markets, and then uh, over the period of a year or two, we'll build a relationship with an operator. Uh, like us in that market that we really like and get along with. And over time, once, once we've built some trust, we start sharing deal flow um, and, mm. and uh, bandwidth increases on both sides in that regard. So um, that's another thing that we do just to encourage. Deal so if flow. that person, so you find a market like you're, you said you were, you're in Orlando. Yeah, we did. We do have an asset in Orlando. We actually are not encouraging deal flow in that market right okay. now. Okay. All right. Well, in the past, another, yeah. <laughs> another market that you, you are. So you find an sure. operator and then what's that team partnership look like then he's kind of the mm -hmm. operator and then you're helping kind of find bring capital like how does that that no, new no, relationship no. work it all depends upon the deal um typically we uh we have like a we have a policy essentially within our organization that says that we uh in any deal that we're involved in we need to be a co-gp and uh have a very high level of involvement in any deal from deal provision to disposition so uh we get involved very early on in uh, like say say it's with an say it's with a partner that is outside of our our main focus market where they have the deal provision network they have the brokerage relationships etc. Mm -hmm. um, as they encourage deal flow, they share it with us. We underwrite it maybe even first, or we co underwrite it in parallel uh, to make sure that it matches our our needs mm -hmm. and it actually has investable value. Um, and then we'll get in and and usually they would usually the the team on the ground in that market would be the folks that would do the inspections and probably run the business plan from a construction perspective or of a remodeling perspective, but we'll get involved with asset management. Um, <clears throat> we'll get involved with capital raising, of course, um, as would they, we would share basically a lot of the responsibilities based upon core competency. So okay. it's very dependent and very market dependent, but, um, yeah, very, we don't get involved just as capital raisers. We are okay. actually, everything you know, our operators. Yeah. But if someone had a deal in one of your target cities that they didn't, they found it, but they don't know what to do with it, or it's a little bit over their head. Could they bring mm -hmm. that to you, and then you would be they would be part of it? Or that so long as yeah, so long as that market matches our criteria for investment, we have six quantitative criteria and like fifteen qualitative criteria. Okay, um, and if it matches those criteria and in a certain way, um, and it's data and it's data proven, data driven, you know then certainly we could come in and say, yes, you've got a 75 unit. You're not really sure exactly how to develop the business plan or underwrite this thing or capitalize it. Or what does that capital stack look like? We could certainly come in and <clears throat> support that team that's growing uh, with that skill set and that competent, those core competencies and then uh, co-GP on it and, and, and run the deal. Absolutely. Okay. What are those six things that you look for in a market? You mentioned inland, yeah. right? 
Uh, yeah. Ge so geographic location actually is, is one of the qualitative criteria. So the quantitative mm -hmm. criteria are uh, population size, um, population growth, rent growth, median income. Did I say job growth? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, job growth and, and unemployment. Um, so those are the six key okay. figures that we look at. And once those box or boxes are checked, uh, then we go into a whole host of qualitative things like it's inland. Is it likely to get hit by major natural disasters? <laughs> yeah. Is it uh, got a high quality of living? That's a really important one. Um, is it nice to live there? Is it a pretty city? Uh, is it big enough to support a cultural scene? Like there's a whole bunch of things. Okay. Like where does it stack up on us news and world reports, like top places to live Are retirees moving there? Sorry. So there's all these different things we look at and if it checks, you know, a decent number of those boxes plus, basically five of the six other quantitative criteria, then that's very okay. interesting to us. Yeah. How, how many of those, a few cities that do that? Yeah, yeah. Was, how many do you have now identified that meet that? Uh, three. Okay. Yeah. Do you have others that are on your radar? You just haven't found a deal yet? Or is it kind of those are the three that are the focus? Those are our focus. I mean, okay. we could certainly go and find other, there's other markets out there for sure that meet mm -hmm. those criteria. Um, but we try to stay as focused as possible. And, yeah. um, that's just the best way that we can ensure that we're taking care of the assets and taking care of our investors ultimately. Um, so we don't, we try not to spread ourselves too thin. We're a small team. Uh, we have three partners, you know, yeah. so. Yeah. So that was my next question is it's a team sport, you know, multifamily yeah. investing. Can you speak to, I guess the team that's part of, uh, your, your company. And then I guess maybe the third party guys that maybe you work with, uh, as mm -hmm. well. Sure. So, yeah, uh, our team is made up of three partners. Um, I've got uh, I, my main focus is we're all full time real estate professionals, full time investors. Um, and uh, my role is uh, business. I've got that entrepreneurial background. So businesses, processes and systems and, and general strategy, uh, plus the capital raising and the investor relations, um, kind of anything that's external facing um, related okay. to our brand and our messaging is my world. Uh, my other two partners are uh, chartered financial analysts. They cut their teeth on Wall Street in Boston, New York. So uh, one of them was a corporate bond trader and a, and a trader on Wall Street. So she's our acquisitions. Uh, she's basically our uh, corporate um, acquisitions officer. So she makes sure that um, we're encouraging deal flow. She's the first, the tip of the strategic spear from an underwriting perspective uh, in most cases in our, in our target markets. And uh, then negotiates essentially um, puts together all of the kind of acquisition side of the business plan um, and disposition to some extent. Uh, my other partner is uh, also my wife and uh, she also was a chartered financial analyst, uh, but her focus was on portfolio management. So um, she was a mortgage backed security specialist and fixed income specialist in wall street. And uh, so her world is portfolio management, asset management, managing the property managers. So she makes sure that the mm -hmm. business plan actually gets executed, which is extremely detail oriented, requires a really vast kind of uh, skill set. And so I'm happy to have her. I I'm like a really broad, <laughs> big picture, like, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, that's, how I, that's how I am. I know enough information to be dangerous. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I'm the, so I'm the same way. The really serious stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, my brother's um, my, uh, he's good with all the numbers and, and the admin and the follow through and the, like uh -huh. all the check boxes. Um, yeah. You know, yeah more like exactly. you with the, uh, and probably more external facing and strategy and big, big picture. So. Yeah. Sounds about the same, same division of labor. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's what makes up our core team. Um, we also have a marketing communications associate who supports us with, you know, developing the newsletter, sending investor relations communications, um, 
putting together marketing packages, things like that, uh, posting on social media if we need to do that. So that kind of thing. Um, and then you talked about third party, which there's a whole host of third party vendors like property managers, uh, construction people, um, you know, inspectors, insurance, lending. There's a ton of third party yeah. folks that mostly the asset manager manages those relationships. Um, so Christina does, and then, uh, in terms of other partners, uh, those are other operating teams, just like mm. ours that are usually two to three folks who split up somehow, uh, deal finding asset management and capital raising. Okay. So you had mentioned, you know, a lot of these syndication deals, five to seven years kind of hold time. You know, this is like an active business of, you know, flipping them in a sense, right? You're buying it with the intention of selling it. That's really uh, where both you and the, then the investors make their money. Uh, what about like personally for a more of a long-term hold strategy? What's your portfolio look like or what are you looking for? Kind of where yeah. do you park your money? Yeah, I would say actually that our main thesis is to hold. So even though we will underwrite to a five-year period, oftentimes that would mean that we would uh, at that point <clears throat> either keep investors in the deal or we would buy them out essentially of the deal and pull the capital the equity out. <clears throat> um, so we do like to hold our assets. Okay. Um, and with our own personal strategy, our own kind of internal accurate strategy where we're 1031ing our own, you know, assets uh, into other assets in different markets, like that's definitely a hold strategy. So mm -hmm. um, that said, that's our preference is to hold um, okay. for the cash flow and for the ultimately the appreciation that hopefully happens in those growth markets. But um, if an opportunity exists for an exit and we need capital to deploy into other deals as, as kind of working investment capital, then we will do that. So it's not like we're rigidly stuck in that exit. It's really important when you're looking at assets to have a few different exits that you can employ uh, based upon market condition and market cycle. So um, we're always okay. keeping an eye out for opportunities. Like the three assets that we sold in Washington at the end of COVID, or not the end of COVID, COVID's not over, but in the end of uh, you know financial yeah, the 20, yeah. Yeah, the shutdowns, like yeah. those all sold, we plan to hold those into perpetuity but a huge opportunity uh, came up and we said, well, let's, let's sell these things. And then we, you know, redeployed that capital. Okay. So if, if you wanted to buy out in, in, in a group of investors to, you know, hold it internally, how, how do you go about funding that? Is it, do you get a loan against the, the property to then buy them out or what is that like mechanically? That's a good, it's a great question. And because uh, right, there's uh, other guys who don't want to get out, you can't take <clears> debt <throat> on the building because it's, it's your debt, right? Personally, right. Yeah. To gain ownership of their shares. I, I you yeah, haven't done the, it yet, probably yet. So maybe it's premature. But it, this is it, it's it's a little it's it's definitely a little bit more of a complicated uh, maneuver. Um, and there's a couple different ways to do it. Um, and I would have to absolutely default to my partners who structure the deals. Actually, they're the like I said, I know enough to be dangerous. Um, <clears throat> okay, That's certainly great. taking yeah, out yeah. taking out financing, you know, can be one way to to uh, at that new higher appreciated value is one way to, you know, all of a sudden bring a bunch of capital that you can use to buy out the investors. Um, uh, you know, as long as you buy them out and make them whole based upon your projections, like ultimately that's, they're going to be happy with that outcome. Um, so if you can figure out a way to do that, some could potentially stay in the deal. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, but in terms of the specific mechanics, uh, okay. I'll invite you to invite my partner Lin Yang onto the program and she can, she can get into <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the nitty gritties right. in that. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, hey, so I want a question about your, your goals, you know, having clarity around your goals is kind of critical for achieving success. What are some of your kind of big vision goals of where you want to take your company? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, we're both in GoBundance. We are big goal setting guys and that, you know, I think really is a big part of, of my life and certainly within our business. Um, so our ultimate goal within our organization is fairly qualitative. Um, it is to create freedom in the lives of our partners and our investors, uh, which sounds maybe kind of wishy-washy, but it's a really significant reason why we started this organization. Um, and every single time we have a quarterly strategic offsite, we uh, reapproach that. And, and sometimes even sooner than that. Are we producing freedom for our lives? Uh, if if the three of us can't say, and, and for our investors, if the three of us can't say, yes, we are making some materially beneficial impact on our freedom in our lives to be mm -hmm. able to travel, spend time with family, feel relaxed at work, feel encouraged by the work that we're doing, then we stop everything and we say, what do we need to do to fill that gap? So ultimately our goal is to produce freedom in our lives. And that looks like, you know, first and foremost, financial security and financial freedom to be able to do whatever we want with our time um, and, and have a business that has enough systems and processes in place such that it'll run with eventually minimal uh, impact from the partnership. Mm -hmm. um, so we are building a robust set of systems and a team. So this thing runs like a really well-oiled machine uh, so that you know we can continue to be involved in it, but also rest assured that with, with confidence and with consistency, it produces value every single quarter. So um, building the system in our, of our business, the little engine to produce freedom for our lives and the lives of our investors is our ultimate uh, kind of, uh, that's the drum that we're constantly beating. Um, there are certainly revenue targets that are related to that for us personally and for our, our investors. So we have revenue targets and, and units, kind of assets under management targets um, in our different markets. Um, but I won't get into all the specifics of that, but, um, we have big aspirations for growth and scaling without getting so big that this thing turns into a corporation that has all of the administrative trappings of large corporations that us three partners have all worked in. We just don't want to get there. We don't ever yep. want to get to that, that place. Yep. Yeah. So you mentioned having a number of those processes, you know, we all have the same 168 hours a week. What are, what are some of those processes or things you're doing to, to give you, you know, there's time freedom, there's geographical freedom, there's mm -hmm. relationship freedom, you know, there's all these freedoms. That's what you mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. What are some of the processes that you're, you've put in place or you're working on to yeah. be able to leverage that? Yeah. So I'd say first and foremost, it's, it's uh, putting systems in place and processes in place that really organize uh, communication within our organization um, mm -hmm. so that we have all the information we need to be making smart choices and decisions. And um, and these are processes and systems like weekly standing meetings, uh, communication tools, uh, tools to manage workflow. Um, uh, also processes and systems, literally like written up uh, documents, standard operating procedures for how to conduct due diligence on a deal, how to encourage deal flow within a market. Um, literally step by step. Like if if I gave it to you tomorrow, you could read it and say, "Oh, this is how the Acris team does it." Um, and the reason we do that is so that as we grow our team and bring on more partners or more full time employees, we can give them those documents. They can read it and say, "Okay, this is where I start. I first log into Active Campaign and I go and I see who are my broker relationships in." Uh, Phoenix. Okay, well, let's go in there and I can see all the notes and all the information mm -hmm. related to that, that individual and, and kind of pick up the conversation from there. So, you know, everything is systematized to a point of like militant, I won't say militant because we're fun. We have fun. It's we're freedom yeah, is our, is our world, but you know, we're very, very diligent about that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, and that's and so even scale. That's, like you said, you bring in new people. Here's the playbook of how to do everything. 
And then yeah. you don't have to walk them through step by step because you've got it all written. Um, yeah, exactly. do, do you guys follow traction? EOS? Uh, so yeah, a little bit. And we use some of the same ideas like uh, disciplines for execution. Um, 40X. You know, yeah. yeah, we use, um, you know, I think the fundamental book that I was given uh, by one of my mentors back when I started into the entrepreneurial world in 2005 was a book called The E-Myth mm -hmm. uh, Revisited by Michael Gerber. Um, if you're an entrepreneur or an aspiring entrepreneur or have your own business and you don't have those ideas in mind, this is this could be a game changer. So uh, definitely pick that book up. It's it's kind of our manual and we use it to systematize our business. Okay. Um, the other thing I think I would say is really get clear and aware of what uh, work you're doing you should be doing as the entrepreneur leader and what work you shouldn't really be doing. Like uh, there's another great book out there that my whole team has adopted. And the ideas that my team has adopted called deep work by Cal mm -hmm. Newport. Um, and that helps you to identify deep work versus shallow work, deep work, meaning work that you do that really produces something new, real value in the world. Shallow work being all the administrative stuff that yeah, might support work. that deep work. It's busy work, you know? Yeah. Um, and so identifying those two things and parsing them out, uh, you know, making sure you're, you're setting time aside for deep work that's not distracted and that you have systems and processes to either eliminate or mitigate the shallow work and or outsource the shallow work so that you just can be yeah, really Otherwise, fun. it's like a tidal wave that pulls you in and then your whole day, yeah. right, goes goes out the window and you got nothing like a pinball, done. Pin, like a pinball machine is what yeah. I feel like. You know, if I don't have that stuff identified and, and grouped, I feel like a pinball machine and nothing actually gets done. I just feel stressed out by the end of the day. I want to be able to like unplug at 530 and just recharge my brain for the next day, enjoy time with my family, enjoy time in the mountains where I live. You know, if I don't do that, then I just, I'm not happy. I don't have freedom in my life, you know, ultimately. Yep. Awesome. So where can uh, listeners connect and find out more about you and your company? Yeah. Um, you can find all sorts of resources and ways to connect with myself and my partners and my team at our website, which is www.acriscapital.com, which is A K. RAScapital.com. Uh, we have an ebook there. We have uh, a contact form. We have investor applications. If you're looking at deploying capital as a limited partner or even as an active partner, or if you're looking to partner with us, get in touch with us. We'll love to have a conversation with you. You can book a meeting with me directly through cap my Calendly link on that website. So acriscapital.com. Um, you can also send me an email at cstevenson at acriscapital.com. I'm pretty approachable. Um, and, um, yeah, just keep an eye on it. We have, you know, we have a digital presence on all the different social media places and we have a newsletter. So sign up for that. Lots of different ways to connect. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for coming on and sharing your story and everything about syndication. I think, uh, you know, you, you added a lot of value here, so appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. I appreciate you. Thanks for putting this together. I hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode of Business with Beers. My goal with every episode is to help inspire you to reach new levels of success in your own business and life. So start taking action today. And in order to help this podcast reach more people, please rate, review, and share. To connect with me on Instagram and Twitter, check out the links in the show notes. And until next time, have a great day.